Some say that alongside this see-it-to-believe-it world is the shadowy realm of the supernatural. Sometimes the residents of that dimension touch us, and in one moment, our lives are changed forever. America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, Mary Ann Pohl, is your real ghost chatter host. On this podcast, you'll hear stories by real people who have seen real ghosts. Once in a while, Mary Ann will podcast a tale taken from the genre she loves best, the supernatural. Welcome to today's Real Ghost Chatter episode. I'm Marianne Paul, America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, a charter member of a wonderful group of writers called Author Masterminds, and your host on Real Ghost Chatter. First, I'm going to tell you Merry Christmas. We're in the last few days beforehand. Hope you're ready. I hope this podcast finds you and you're celebrating and rejoicing about the reason for this season. Since this is Christmas week, I'm starting off with a story from Raven's Cove, a fictional Alaska town which has seen its share of hauntings and a wonderful anomaly, which is occurring right now through December 25th. Then I'll share two haunted destinations that you may want to add to your list of travels, or maybe not if you're like me and a bit wary of things you can't see, feel, hear, or touch. First, here's the Christmas tale from the perspective of Kat Toslowski, the protagonist of Raven's Cove. Kat writes, For as long as I can remember, it has been a Christmas Eve tradition in the Bricken household to go door to door and sing. So Grandma and I squeezed into Bart's old truck and off we went with Wendy. Pastor Lucas and wife Tanya bringing up the rear. We stopped to carol for Arnie and Amos Thralling who surprised us all by saying they too would like to join us for the festivities. Our last stop was Bernice Tillamutes. Mrs. Tillamut has a small, tidy cabin in the most remote area of the cove. She also has a beautiful companion. His name is Benny, And for all of you that have not read his story in Ingress, he is a white wolf who mysteriously arrived and took up residence with Mrs. Telemut. Wolves are a part of my people's history. Benny taking up residence in the cove would give this place a revered status in days gone by. But back to the story. We started singing. Mrs. Telemut opened her door, a big smile on her face. Benny bounded into our small group, sat down in our midst, raised his head to the starlit sky and gave a slight hap-hap when a particular song put him in the mood. Now, Arnie Thralling loves to sing, but as my granddad would say, he can't carry a tune in a silver bucket, and this man can belt out the songs. My ears were ringing from the off-key baritone, so I was glad when we came to the final song, Oh Holy Night. At the refrain, Fall on Your Knees, Arnie gave it everything, so much so that his voice cracked. This was Benny's cue. He threw his head back and let out a howl that would have curled the hair on the back of my neck if I hadn't known it was Benny. The entire group went silent and stared at the white wonder. From deep woods came a response. We all turned in unison to face the darkness. A majestic gray wolf emerged from the stand of trees. Three others flanked him. They began to advance. We began to retreat. We were just about pinned against Mrs. Tillamut's deck when Benny charged to the front planted his muscular legs and growled. Benny lowered his head and he took a step forward. The lead wolf stood his ground and snarled a response. Benny took another step forward. And what were the humans doing, you ask? Standing like helpless ice sculptures, that's what. 
The standoff lasted only seconds, but felt like hours to me. For no apparent reason, the leader yelped, broke eye contact, turned and raced into the protection of the forest. The other three followed. Benny wheeled, sat and gave another howl to the night sky. This time, there was no response. I do not understand how animals communicate, but I believe it is as much unspoken as it is verbal. What I do understand is that I witnessed a miracle and a gift from God. Then I remembered I was singing songs because of the most amazing gift of all, Jesus Christ. I'm still singing carols. That night, Christmas became a 365-day event. And so on to the anomaly that began on the 21st and will be going through the 25th. Looking back over 2020, it has been, well, a memorable year. Pastor Dana Coverstone covered it well. He called 2020 the dumpster fire year. Yep, that sums it up. I mean, who started the fire? Is the fire department ever coming? All good questions, don't you think? Well, I do believe the fire department has been with us all along. As I write, I think about the true meaning of Christmas. This year has allowed me to ponder it even more than I have other years. We are celebrating the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. God's gift to this world is a huge reason to celebrate. Not only celebrate, but shout it from the rooftops. No matter what happens in this world, it is only temporary. We have heaven waiting, and it is eternal. Still, reminders of the greatest gift of love ever witnessed are always encouraging. So if you've been looking for some encouragement amid this year's chaos, here's something. The Star of Bethlehem is visible from December 21st to December 25th. Technically, it isn't actually a star, but is the aligning of two planets, Jupiter and Saturn. This alignment is a rare occurrence. The last time this happened was 1226 AD, and you, my friends, are here to witness it in 2020. I am reminded that 2,000 years ago, a baby was born under such a star. And this event tells me that Jesus is not only still here, he is active. Of all the years for this remarkable occurrence, 2020 is the one I choose. So many need hope and encouragement during these dark and uncertain days. If this year you don't quite have the Christmas spirit, maybe walking outside about 45 minutes after dark and looking to the southwest sky will encourage you and remind you miracles happen all the time and usually just when we need them. Now, on to two fun haunted places I've come across. The first one is St. Augustine Lighthouse in St. Augustine, Florida. I've decided to give a little disclaimer here. I suggest every day, but especially when visiting haunted sites, put on the full armor of God. If you want to read up on that, it's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Lighthouse fans know it's not unusual for these beacons of light to come with dark stories. St. Augustine, Florida has one such place. The current St. Augustine Lighthouse is a private navigation aid and an active working lighthouse. It stands at the north end of Anastasia Island. Built between 1871 and 1874, the tower is the second lighthouse tower in St. Augustine. The American territorial government officially lit the first tower in May of 1824. The history of St. Augustine Lighthouse goes back hundreds of years. Both the Spanish and the British governments operated a significant help to navigation here, including a series of wooden watchtowers and beacons dating back to 1565. Maps from 1589 detail Sir Francis Drake's raid of the coast. The 1589 chart mentions the wooden watchtower. Built to support the nearby Castillo de Marcos, this observation tower survived numerous changes of hands. Each new conqueror had their particular idea of not only how the tower should function, but its design. 
So different owners added to, took away, then added back building parts. Throughout this constant redesign, the watchtower also saw its share of epic sinkings. An example is the HMS industry, which sank in 1763, taking all of the iron, axes, and grindstones Britain sent to build the new American colonies. Then there were the 16 ships that wrecked, fleeing the aftermath of the American victory in the Revolutionary War, one raucous New Year's Eve. Other historic maritime stories include pirate invaders and a Spanish captain who cut off an accused smuggler's ear. The current St. Augustine Lighthouse was built after the South's fall in the Civil War when fears grew over the tower's state. The lighthouse was structurally unsound, probably due to being remodeled numerous times, so concerns were that it would fall into the ocean. Luckily, funding was granted and a new lighthouse was built near the original site in 1874, solving the old one's structural problems. The new tower saw its share of woes, such as the World War II era when the waters were rife with German U-boats prowling the coastline. Several untimely deaths occurred at the lighthouse and its grounds, including those of two different keepers. One of the most famous ghosts is that of lighthouse keeper Peter Rasmussen. Mr. Rasmussen was known for his careful watch over the tower. He also adored the finer things in life. Keeping up with modern luxuries was of utmost importance to him, so he installed bathtubs and closets and laboratories in the keeper's house. Even more than the modern luxuries, Peter loved cigars, and it is rumored his desire for these finer things continued into the next life. Some visitors to the St. Augustine Lighthouse Keeper's Quarters get whiffs of the scent of cigar smoke. Another report is about a ghost of another lighthouse keeper, Joseph Andreu, who fell to his death from the top of the tower when the scaffolding used to complete paint repairs collapsed. Those who hear the screams of a man falling to his death can undoubtedly attest to the chilling nature of the specter. Others report seeing a large dark male figure in the basement. Legend says it is possibly the spirit of a former caretaker who hung himself in the lighthouse. People report the voice of the 12-year-old daughter of the lighthouse's builder who drowned near the building can sometimes be heard. Some say they hear footsteps shuffling on the gravel and the steps outside the lighthouse. The most famous lighthouse legend centers on two young sisters, Eliza and Mary, the daughters of Hezekiah Pitty. Hezekiah was hired to complete construction work and repairs on the St. Augustine Lighthouse. He used a cart to tote his equipment back and forth. While preoccupied with his work, Mr. Pitty did not notice a group of children, including his daughters, using the cart like a toy. The wagon, unsecured, tumbled down the hill and into the bay. While several of the other children were rescued, Eliza and Mary plunged to a watery grave. People claim to see their spirits and hear laughing and playing on the property and in the lighthouse's halls. Current lighthouse staff lock the tower door at night only to find it unlocked in the morning. St. Augustine Lighthouse is alive, but not just with humans. It seems the ghosts of this place don't want to leave and they want to be remembered. So then there's this other destination I found, and it's called Goldbrook Covered Bridge, Vermont, and it can be also known as Emily's Bridge in Vermont. So I think we can all agree that New England has some beautiful structures and fantastic scenery. The leaves in autumn are breathtaking. The covered bridges evoke thoughts of times past, times that maybe were just a little bit more innocent and relaxed. There's another side to the beautiful scenery and the historic structures in New England, though. Sometimes, the older designs lend themselves to hauntings. Take this Goldbrook Covered Bridge in Vermont, for example. 
Located in Stovermont, Goldbrook Covered Bridge sits on Covered Bridge Road. Appropriate, right? The locals call it Emily's Bridge. The 49-foot structure was built in 1844 by John W. Smith to connect Covered Bridge Road over Goldbrook. Goldbrook Bridge became known as Emily's Bridge because of local tales of a young girl who had died due to a broken heart. There is no historical proof that Emily ever existed. Still, there are several tales. In terms of hauntings, the encounters here are relatively recent. The first known story comes from a high school student around 1968 who purportedly encountered Emily's spirit while using a Ouija board on the bridge. There are at least two versions of Emily's story. In one tale, Emily and her lover were supposed to elope. When the groom didn't show, her grief and disappointment were so deep, she tied a rope to the bridge's rafters and hung herself. Another tale has Emily arriving at church to marry her beloved. The groom was a no-show. The jilted bride was so distraught that she leaped into the family wagon and drove off. Blinded by grief, she took the team of horses to an incredible speed. When trying to navigate the turn before the bridge, the horses, wagon, and Emily crashed over the bank and into the rocky brook with no survivors. No matter the story, there are disturbing reports of paranormal activity here. People who parked under the bridge claim to have heard banging noises on the sides of their cars, sounds of something being dragged across their car roofs, and report deep scratches on the sides of their vehicles. Others report being scratched or touched. Still others say they see a female apparition in white. Strange noises such as footsteps banging, ropes tightening, and a woman screaming are heard. Interestingly, photos taken have displayed unexplained floating balls of light. Some paranormal investigators claim these types of orbs are spirits. Most paranormal activity seems to occur here between the hours of 9.30 p.m. and 3.30 a.m. So, are you up for a midnight or early morning jaunt across a rumored to be haunted bridge in Vermont? If you are, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with others you think would also be interested. If you'd like to know more about me, go to maryannpoll.com and or authormasterminds.com forward slash mary-ann-poll. Until next time, may the wind always be at your back, the sun on your face, and the good Lord walk beside you.